Jim. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, and how about you? I'm doing well, although uh, I've been thinking a lot in this past week about uh, some of the events down in Texas and other areas of what we might call natural disasters, and uh, thinking about how psychologically and physically we might cope with them. Well, that's a good uh, good thing to think about, I suppose. You know, we've been looking at things like memory, and uh, in, the, in the past we've looked at humor, but yeah, digging out some of the some of the psychological consequences of disasters, you know, is something we should probably uh, take a take a look at. Well, it's not a not an optimistic or happy topic necessarily, but you know, the thing is that. Uh, Unfortunately, in this life, we, we all may run into some sort of personal incident, uh, or we may be a witness of something unfortunate, and both of those can affect us uh, psychologically. Yeah, right. We've uh, looked at things like vicarious trauma, you know, just watching somebody else uh, be traumatized. Okay, so what kinds of things can we think about for... Um, disasters, and it, they fall into three categories generally, right? Man-made, natural, and industrial uh, catastrophes. Yeah, and that's the way we usually break them out. Now, you raised an interesting point, Jim, when you said that often a natural disaster will lead to uh, a disaster that's uh, man-created. Yeah, we were talking about that as we were getting ready for today's podcast. Yeah, so something like, um, let's see, the power outages in Texas were the result of a big storm, right? Right, okay. yeah, so natural disaster. Yeah. But the consequence of it was that the power went out, so it was a big storm, and the power went out because of uh, a lack of preparation in the power grid, and um, you can't get snow and ice off your solar panels and your windmills don't work, right? Because it's, yeah. whereas up here, it's cold all the time. Well, it's cold all the time in the winter. And our solar panels work and our windmills work. Yeah. Because it, we've designed for them, right? Yeah. you We've designed for them, which makes them more expensive. Yeah. Well. But they keep working in the wintertime. And the other thing is that in terms of natural gas plants, we uh, we still... Uh, in the north have natural gas plants that don't go out because they're hardened for extreme cold. Right, right. So we we have the same thing that Texas had, but it's not as as devastating for us because of, of planning. Yeah. What other kinds of disasters can you think about that we've... I mean, well, 12-mile island, that was a... That was a uh, an industrial disaster, right? That we had a yeah. meltdown of an atomic power plant. Yeah. Well, we've got, uh, in terms of natural disasters, with all of the associated things that might happen to uh, infrastructure, we've got floods, we've got droughts, earthquakes, landslides, or mudslides, uh, Snowstorms, tsunamis, mm -hmm. tornadoes. Okay, uh, now, if we wanted to, I don't know if we do or not, but 
we could pull back on that. And that listing that you uh, just gave would come under what some people would say would, would come under the rubric of climate change. So climate change could be seen as a, what, a man-made yeah, disaster. Now, I mean, that's, that, you know. You, you can get an argument on that. Right. There is no argument that the climate is changing. Mm-hmm. Whether it's 100% due to man-made causes or it's 100% due to natural shifts, we know that over the millennia, the climate has changed naturally. It's been cold sometimes and hot sometimes, and, yeah. yeah. So, or is it a mix of the two? And, and my vote would be it's a mix of the two. Yeah, it's not, nothing is real simple. You yeah. Know? As we were talking earlier about things like binary choices, uh, it, it, we see more and more that the choice isn't uh, yeah. chocolate and vanilla. You know, it, are, it's either this or that. Well, no. no uh, it's at least strawberry. And, yeah. You know, so, yeah. So, well, things like that, that impact people now are uh, uh, economic instability. Now, you and I are, are retired, and so we've got a stable fixed income, not as much as we'd like, but, you know, an income nonetheless. Uh, hey, and listeners, if you want to contribute to uh, Ralph and uh, Jim's uh, lifestyle, our, our ability to drink coffee and talk at the same time, you know, we will accept uh, donations. We're not yeah. grovel. We won't grovel today, right? <laughs> no, but we will take them. <laughs> now, so so pe some people don't have lost their job. Uh, probably, in some cases, it might be a, a permanent thing because we've seen uh, um, stores and, and businesses closed down. So that's going to cause economic instability. But what else is it going to cause? Well, it's going to cause anxiety. It's going to cause a stress reaction. Uh, it's going to cause emotional instability. Um, one of the things I heard yesterday, Ralph, is that, uh, I guess we talked about this with Amy a couple of weeks ago, but um, uh, because it's now on NPR, it's official, okay, that uh, uh, spousal abuse or uh, domestic violence has yeah. gone up markedly. Well, we, we knew this, but uh, like I say, now that it's on NPR, it's, it's official. Well, spousal abuse usually goes hand in hand with uh, excessive consumption of mind-altering substances, primarily alcohol. Okay, yeah. And we know that uh, in spite of the fact that, that people perhaps have less money or some people have less money, that more of the disposable or even indisposable income is going to buy alcohol. Uh-huh, yeah. So alcohol sales are up. Okay, yeah. See, what happens in a disaster of some kind, an emergency, is that uh, your, um, your, uh, what, uh, your emotional system uh, is, uh, is really, really maxed. And so the amygdala, that part of your brain that's responsible for emotion and processing emotion begins to take over and your cerebral co uh, cortex wants to calm down. And so we've just identified a way of calming down. Yeah. So, so you know, the, the one of the things that we sometimes look at in this sort of thing is we say, okay, primary victimization. 
that's the person that it happens to. Mm -hmm. So you lose your job. Mm -hmm. Secondary victimization, you watch. So let's assume that you have a spouse who is not working. You've been the primary breadwinner. You lose your job. Well, the loss of income affects your spouse, but also he or she has to watch you slowly fall apart. Yeah, I get that. That's true, and that is what happens. That people, people slowly fall apart. They they become fearful. They uh, um, they're unsure of what the future you know, might bring. They become yeah. depressed. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so that's that's exactly what happens, and probably. Uh, it affects the children, too. I mean, I don't know if it affects the children as much as it would affect, say, a spouse. Uh, children seem to be pretty uh, pretty resilient when it comes to some of this stuff. But, uh, uh, yeah. How about a worldwide pandemic? What does this do? Well, <laughs> we know a bunch of stuff that it does and a bunch of stuff that it doesn't. And one of the things that um, it can do is cause institutional bad decisions to be made. Like, what do you mean? Well, for example, we know that uh, children under 16, if they get COVID-19, usually have a fairly short uh, incident of being ill with it and a fairly quick full recovery. Right. Right. And they're not going to get the vaccine because it hasn't been tested on kids on, under the age on of kids. Yeah. 16. So, so they're, they're going to be okay. They're going to be okay. But what have we done? Well, in North America, we've shut down just about all the school systems. Aha. Uh -huh. Because the kid who has the COVID symptoms might, what, give it to the lunch lady and she passes it on to the people in her pod? Or so, the teacher. Uh -huh. or, so the thing is, I guess, Jim, that we, we should be saying, keep the schools open because that's the least likely to be harmed group, uh -huh. to be permanently harmed. And if we're going to close something, close the bars. Ralph. Ralph, 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 you're talking heresy now. <laughs> but, well, but, you know, yeah. when, when you think of it, I mean, people go to uh, a bar that's open and they, again, as we were talking about alcohol, a way to calm our nerves. So they have a few drinks and the next thing you know, they're talking right into the face of the guy sitting next to them at the bar and... Well, they don't have their mask on because you can't drink through your mask. Unless I was thinking about building a new mask, Ralph, just just for drinkers. It would okay. be a mask with a straw. That'd work. You know, you put a big smiley face on the mask and a straw in the middle, and yeah. You know. Can you drink beer through a straw? You well, we can. Might it's not. <laughs> it's not very good. Okay. Well, we might have to do that. Do an experiment later on. Yeah. With that one. Yeah. Um, but you know. All kidding aside, the uh, the the perhaps overreaction. Yesterday, again on NPR, I heard about um, gymnasiums. There's a gym out in I think it's out in oh, West someplace, maybe Washington State, 
and another one in Chicago, and they had an inordinate number of cases of COVID-19. Uh, and the one out in Washington or out west was attributed to one instructor, and the one in in uh, Illinois was attributed to I don't know, the kind of gymnastics or the kind of the, the things that people were doing. But this has led almost in 24 hours to people calling for the uh, shutdown of gyms. Well, I went to Planet Fitness yesterday, and uh, first of all, it uh, was at what, two third, no, one one quarter capacity. There weren't very many people in there. Everybody had masks. Uh, uh, everybody was social socially distanced, and you know, people in gyms have had. You know the the habit that they have had for years is they wipe everything down. Yeah. So it could be that that was a very safe environment, and yet people are calling for them now to be you know shut down because oh that's where the super spreaders are. So there's the disaster that is the COVID nineteen, and as you pointed out, there's the what stupid institutional response to the disaster. Yeah, and and you know I mean well meaning, but. Uh, wrong-headed. Hmm. <clears throat> the other thing that we are looking at now that's also kind of interesting, <clears throat> when you and I were in elementary school up in Canada, lo, these many years ago, uh, every classroom in the school had somewhere between five and seven windows, all of which could be opened. Right, yeah. Today, uh, schools and office buildings and a lot of apartment towers are virtually hermetically sealed. Mm -hmm. But we know back in 1918 with the Spanish flu epidemic, there was a lot of uh, unscientific, uh, undiscovered um, theories of germ that were just beginning to be uh, promulgated in the medical community. Before that, they had thought that a lot of diseases, uh, tuberculosis, measles, etc., etc., came from malaria, bad air. Uh huh. So one of the prescriptions for the Spanish flu was you put people into areas, rooms, where there was an open door or a vent on one wall, and there were a bunch of open windows. Mm-hmm, yeah. And surprisingly enough, that was an effective treatment because the flu spreads through the air. Right. So you move the air through, yeah, you, you move, move fresh air through. And, you know, Ralph, if you and I had been around in 1918, we could have pointed that out to people because, hey, we feel a lot better in the uh, summertime yeah. when we're when outside we're out doors, yeah, uh, with the sun things. and fishing and you know, planting stuff. And, yeah, uh, so, hey, it's too bad that we weren't around in 1918. Oh, were we around in 1918? <laughs> well, not quite. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, but you get... People who are, you know, feeling out of control or feeling helpless, and they latch on to to, to theories. I'm not saying that uh, uh, Dr. Fauci is, you know, feeling out of control and, and uh, helpless, but but uh, you know, we get people 
Well, let me give you an example. Um, somebody uh, took what uh, Donald Trump said. Uh, he said something like, um, uh, sterilize your blood or something like that. Uh, and, yeah. And they went they, and tried to do it. What was it? Battery acid or something like uh, that? Yeah. Didn't, yeah. Uh, not a good outcome. Not a good outcome. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and that kind of thing, I think, is because... Um, and a large number of people have become literalists now. So when somebody tells them, uh, you know, it's in the blood, sterilize your blood, uh, they take that literally. Uh-huh, yeah. It's, uh, and it's kind of interesting when you think about sterilizing your blood. And we'll be talking in other sessions about um, uh, sort of antidotes to um, uh, uh, bad reactions to, to disaster. But... Uh, yeah, the, the idea that uh, nutrition or that you can do something is uh, uh, being lost, I think, in a lot of people. This is leading to uh, feelings of despair. Uh, suicide rate is going up because people are feeling helpless and hopeless. Yeah, now one of the things about that, Jim, is whether it's uh, a worldwide pandemic or uh, a... Uh, a snowstorm in an area where there usually is, is no snow. Or an oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico, you know, yeah. So we have a critical incident. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it comes out of the blue. Yes, it's unexpected. unexpected. Yeah. Uh, the way you usually cope with things don't work. Mm -hmm. um, the critical incident shocks you, it challenges you, and it changes how you see the world. Yeah. You know, there's a, um, a ranger, you know, United States ranger saying uh, concerning, you know, changing the world and, and how they, um, who the enemy is. Is it, I've got it here in my notes someplace. Yeah. It's fear that kills you, not the enemy. Yeah. So the, a lot of the training, apparently, with SEALs and rangers are psychological. It's not to, to yield to the fear, right? Right. But that's, we human beings tend to you know, be scared sometimes when we're confronted with, with things that are unknown. I mean, go back to, you know, when you were a kid and, you know, remember the boogeyman that used to live under the bed? <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah. We've uh, grown out of that. But, you know, it's not inconceivable that in times of high stress, that we would regress to fear of the boogeyman. Right, you know, got, whatever the boogeyman might be. Yeah, you've talked in, in other um, podcasts, Ralph, about how we might have really good coping skills in a non-stress situation, but when the stress level goes up, we regress back to, what is it you talk you, about? The, you the, decline the to your lowest level of training. Yeah, so... So, for example, Jim, if, if I have no training at all, yeah, and somebody near me uh, is cutting open the roast for dinner, and they slice their forearm very badly, yeah, okay, I have no training, okay, so I don't know what to do. So I do what I think is reasonable, mm -hmm. whether it's right or not. Yeah, you take the the 
what, the napkin that's on the table, and you put it over the wound maybe, right? Right. Okay. So uh, if I've got Red Cross first aid, mm -hmm. I may say, okay, the first thing to do is to elevate your arm above your head. Aha, uh -huh. see what you're, where you're going with this, okay. So the next thing to do is I'll grab this tea towel and I'll wrap it around you as tight as I can, and then I'll go into the junk drawer and grab the duct tape and wrap that around as tight as I can. So you're making kind of a tourniquet, right? Well, at least I'm putting a pressure bandage on. Okay, and my, remember, my response was to take the napkin and put it over top of the thing. Right? Yeah. So you were slowing the bleeding down. Slowing the bleeding and down putting, and, yeah. and putting pressure on the wound. And then the next thing I do is uh, call 911 and get an ambulance to come. And yeah. we'll have to look at do you need stitches, et cetera, et cetera, you know. But that's out of my hands. Yeah. Now, if this happened at the uh, Thanksgiving di dinner table of a uh, board-certified uh, surgeon, the response might even be different. We might have the surgeon saying, you know, I can do meatballs. You know, surgery, or I can at least, you know, yeah, uh, or maybe, the hand out. gee, this is this is clearly cut an artery. We better put a tourniquet above your elbow here, and get you to the hospital because I don't want to do meatball surgery on the kitchen table. Uh huh. Okay. Yeah. So, so we have three different people with three different kinds of responses to the same problem, right? Yeah. So, what? There's the psychology of the whole thing. Because different people make different kinds of decisions. Yeah. Some are better than others. But basically, one of the things that we know is uh, what you tell yourself you'll do is what you'll do. Now, if you tell yourself what to do right on the spot, it's a decision under great pressure. Right. And we don't do well making decisions under great pressure. So a lot of these things, as, as ugly and unfortunate as they are to think about, mm -hmm. are better thought about in the tranquility of your armchair. What would I do if uh, I heard my neighbor screaming and I ran out and discovered that she had just run over a three-year-old? Hmm, yeah. Well, okay. So... Not pleasant to think about, but right. is there anything that you could do right then and there? Okay. Let me uh, ask you a different question, okay? Okay. Um, let's, let's use this um, uh, Texas disaster. So we've had a lot of people who uh, normally are in communities, and because of the lack of heat, and uh, they, uh, uh, they, have, they go someplace. They, right. They, they bug out. Um, Let's now take this back in, into Mount Pleasant, Michigan, with you and Karen. Suppose you and Karen, your wife, were in a situation that where uh, your house, staying in your house, was absolutely untenable. You can't do it because of whatever reason, you know? Okay. Uh, have you made a plan for what would happen, what you would do? Uh, yes, we would get in the car and go to your house. That's exactly what uh, uh, Sheila and I... Uh, had planned for you and Karen. You know, and, and the reason for that is that you guys have a wood stove. Mm -hmm. So let's assume that the whole region lost power. Mm -hmm. 
So we can go to your house and you have the wood stove. We can stay warm. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of, a lot of trees. Yeah. And, uh, we can bring a camping stove mm -hmm. so we can heat our tin soup or whatever. Yeah. Except we have a, I don't know, thousand gallon propane tank, you know, attached to our stove. So we don't really need your stove. Tell yeah. you what, I'll bring your wine supply, okay? <laughs> okay. Have yeah. Karen pack that along. Uh, but and we you have know, a we have a generator that runs everything. Yeah. Know, from the uh, pro propane tank, we don't have to store a lot of gasoline around the house and pour gasoline into a generator at three o'clock in the morning. Yeah, you know. and so I guess one of the things that you can say then is, okay, you're pretty well fixed at least in terms of staying warm and being able to cook and so on mm -hmm. and so forth. Now, one of the things that might happen, not, not the first week, not even the second week, but if the power stays out for a long time, you might end up being very cautious about uh, silencing your generator mm -hmm. because you don't want strangers don't, don't the zombies to come down and find yeah, us right and find yeah. you yeah so you know the thing is that there's sort of uh three levels of planning and preparedness the first is immediate mm -hmm. okay go to the carols go to the carols yeah uh the second is two weeks mm -hmm. the third is okay what are we going to do for the next six months, six months, year, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the theme of the most dystopian books that we get to read. Yeah, yeah the one I just finished was level level eleven, I think, which was set in Michigan, and we've got this orchestra and gang of of, of players uh, after a big pandemic. And this was written before uh, two thousand and nineteen. And they're going around Michigan, uh, putting on uh, uh, shows for people who are abandoned or you know, you know, huddling in their their houses. Yeah, so, yeah, then uh, so if you want to see what it would would be like a year out, you get yourself a a uh, dystopian novel. You know, yeah, level eleven will will do it. You know that'll that'll show you where to. Yeah, that might make. You want to blow your brains out. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, I guess, and I would say this, Jim, that um, for people on like Karen and I who don't have good friends that we can say, uh, the Carols have heat and light, uh, at least heat and stove. Uh, what do you do? Well, some people say, well, you have a, you have a bug in. Uh, kit. A bug-in kit? Or sometimes called a bunker-in kit. Bunker, okay. So you don't leave your house. Uh-huh. You shelter in place. Shelter kinda. in place. Mm -hmm. So you know your house, you know your neighbors. Yeah. Uh, generally speaking, um, at least in most cases, <clears throat> some of your neighbors are friends. Yeah. And so you can say, well, what can we do cooperatively. Aha. Uh -huh. Now we've talked about this in the past and we've actually determined that cooperation 
is the best strategy for happiness. But we have also talked about the fact that a lot of people don't know much about being cooperative. True. And the other thing is, you know, you you have to ask your... It's kind of the, the ant and the grasshopper question. Okay, so you have been provident and you've laid in a six-month supply of food for you and your wife. Okay, yeah. And maybe, in fact, you've laid in a six-month supply of food for uh, you and your wife and and your daughter and her husband and the four kids. Okay, yeah. Good. Okay. That's a, something that Sheila and I have talked about, yeah. So you've got that, and everybody comes to your house, and then a neighbor comes up the road and says, hey, uh, you guys have got uh, heat and, and stoves and such. Uh, can me and my wife come and stay with you? Well, what do you got? Mm-hmm. Um, I so, don't got nothing. So, you, yeah. And you then, let them stay or not? You know, they're the grasshoppers. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's not just running out of electricity or not just the pipes freezing, we get into this whole realm of uh, uh, human decision-making, like provisioning up and getting stuck, planning ahead. But now you've opened up this new can of worms, Ralph, and that's ethical decision-making, right? Yeah, so it's ethical to help your neighbors. Mm-hmm. But your neighbors are grasshoppers. Uh-huh, and if you help your neighbors... You might be doing a disservice to your family. And this is going to put you, almost any human being, into a big state of dissonance. It is. You know? Now, the other thing is, you have to say to yourself, okay, I, I let in my neighbor from up the road who doesn't have any supplies, um, didn't even fill up the bathtub with water and do some of the other basic things that are recommended. Uh-huh. Um, so I'm going to harden my heart and tell him, buzz off. Now, okay. how long is it going to be before he gets together with six other people who have not done anything to prepare, and they come to my house, and they've got me and mine outnumbered and maybe outgunned, uh-huh. So and they say, we're taking your stuff. Okay, so here, Ralph, you've given us a scenario to think about, and the scenario very, very quickly, uh, what would be the word, descends into paranoia, right? I'm going to be paranoid about what my neighbors could do to me. Yeah. Now, no, some paranoia is, is rational, right? Right. But... You know, and I think about my neighborhood, my neighbors, I don't think, would do any anything like that. But how about neighbors from 20 miles away who just have enough gas in their car to go 20 miles? Ha-ha, there's Jim's paranoia kicking in pretty well. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I, I don't fear my neighbors next door or my neighbors across the alley because I know them well. Uh-huh. But... How about the guy from three blocks over who doesn't know me from Adam's off ox, mm-hmm. but who sees me 
sitting in my living room with a nice cup of hot coffee. Yeah. And says, hmm. Yeah. And um, you live in a neighborhood that's near the university, and you've got a lot of college students in, in that area. And one of the things I know about college students, you know, having been one a number of years ago, is that we're not really well supplied with things like food. Yeah. We might have a lot of cases of Buckeye beer, uh, which <laughs> which nobody will drink who's in their right mind. Which uh, is a whole other story. But uh, we might have two or three uh, cans of something or other and some uh, boxes of uh, mac and cheese. But the thing that's interesting is that most college students, or a lot of college students, in fact, maybe a lot of people today, don't know how to cook. And, and I'm talking something as simple as, you know, mac and cheese. You know, they, they rely upon um, uh, fast, food. fast food. I mean, uh, uh, the people in your neighborhood, if, you know, if it wasn't for, for pizza, they wouldn't eat anything, right? I, there, there's a lot of people in the, in the college campus area, you know, if they can't get out to Five Guys for a hamburger or have a pizza delivered, um, they might actually starve to death. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, we've gone here for over a half an hour, and I think we've just sort of you know, touched some of the high points. You know, okay, there are a lot of things out there that are potential disasters. We've, we've looked at that. The disaster has a psychological consequence, either what? Yeah. depression, uh, um, confusion, uh, mental illness, uh, suicide, um, that there are some things that you can do ahead of time because if you try to do them at the time, you probably aren't going to do them very well. Yeah. You know, there's a whole area that we've looked at a little bit before, Ralph, and that's this area of resilience. How do you become resilient? Like the ranger here who says, it's fear that's going to kill you. Well, yeah. you can harden yourself against fear. So I think next week we should continue with this. We should look at disasters and we should look at preparedness, but psychological preparedness, like resilience. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And one of the things, Jim, that maybe we can start talking about next week is uh, the difference between an internal locus of control and an external locus of control and what that means for resilience. Okay. Well, it's going to be an interesting week as we prepare for, for this. Now, hey, this is Jim. And Ralph. Saying, keep, keep your, your stick, stick on, on the ice, because we're all in this together. together.